I'm Tony Perkins, and this is More Than a Game, the podcast that takes you beyond the box score and tells the Arizona sports stories you've never heard. In this episode, we see how one school is building empathy through adaptive sports. But first, the connection between Arizona's border communities and baseball. Baseball holds a place of importance for many Latin communities. And such communities in Arizona are no different. In places like Nogales, the sport plays an outsized role in the lives of children, especially for an older generation who grew up in the sport's heyday. For the first part in a series examining the connection between southern Arizona communities and America's pastime, Katya Mendoza begins by exploring the issue as seen through the eyes of a traveling museum exhibit and her own family. MLB features players from all over the world, and Latinos are changing the game. How? Let's find out. Two outs in the ninth, Goldschmidt. Thomas says, that's mine, that's number 10, he's caught. And Mexico has taken down USA. A crucial win. Our story starts with Latinos. I talk with Dr. Margaret Salazar-Porzio, Curator of Latino History and Culture in the Division of Cultural and Community Life at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. She served as a co-curator for the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service known as Sites, Exhibit Playball in the Barrios and the Big Leagues. The exhibit was on display at the Tucson Desert Art Museum from January through April of this year. The bilingual exhibition examines how generations of Latinos have helped make the game what it is today, regardless of gender, race, and class. When I first came to the museum about 10 years ago, I wanted to collect and tell stories that would provide these entry points for us to understand broader issues and themes in Latino history including immigration, labor, gender, and for me baseball came to the fore as like a potential lens, a prism to look at all of these things. And I looked in our collections and I thought, you know, we have a really strong collection of major league stories. We have some great objects related to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. But, you know, we didn't have the kind of community aspect that makes baseball such a rich experience for Latinos across the country. You know, I'm from East L.A. I'm Mexicana, Chicana, but I'm also Japanese. And I just remember like being in the stands with my family and watching my brothers play. And my dad was a coach for a while and just like finding that community. And I remember thinking, you know, we don't have the objects to really demonstrate the depth of that relationship and that community and that experience. Similar to Dr. Salazar Porzio's experience, it was my dad who introduced me to the sport. I remember going to U of A softball games growing up and playing Little League. Although I wasn't any good, my dad will still tell you about my first and last home run that I hit in the first grade. For years later, he would wear an aqua socks cap with a little red-eyed tree frog at the center. Hey, Dad. Hi, Mia. I asked him to tell me how the San Francisco Giants became his team. <laughs> okay, so... So I was, even though I grew up in Nogales since the age of 10 months months old, 
I was born north of San Francisco, Arcata, California, which is outside Eureka. But I fell in love with the San Francisco Giants, first of all, because they, they had the same name that, that I did, right? But then they had these great baseball players, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Juan Manichal. But to many others... And I just fell in love with that team, and they've always been my team. A history of legendary exploits performed by Titans, whose names will live on forever in baseball's wonderland. I asked him about growing up in a border town. Well, uh, you know, Nogales is in Santa Cruz County, and it's probably one of the poorest counties even today, I think. Not that we didn't have the rich families. We did, but uh, most, most of the population was fairly poor. So everybody grew up at that level, uh, there's always jealousy, of course, but uh, for the most part, you know, everybody was felt the same, you know. We looked at each other as the same, and uh, we used to uh, play so many different games that you don't see anybody playing anymore. The tops, el trompo, balero, I mean, there were so many games that we used to play. And, and of course, a lot of us didn't have TV, so we would always get together and one thing that I remember doing, I used to live on Loma Street, and we used to form a football team and baseball team. I can't say that about basketball, but our street, we were the Loma Tigers, and we used to sew on the name Tigers on the back of our white T-shirts, and we used to go play against other street teams, and that was a lot of fun. Did you have rivalries with yeah. other streets? Yeah, the Crusaders, that, that was our biggest rival. The Noom Street Crusaders. One of my dad's closest friends used to live on that street. We used to play baseball. Well, if you want to call it baseball, because we didn't have a baseball to, <laughs> to begin, and we didn't have gloves. So what we did, we, we used to buy these, uh, they used to sell these plastic uh, lemon containers, like a the size of a baseball. They had lemon juice inside, so what we used to do is go buy one, get the, get rid of the juice, and then put uh, little pebbles, and enough to make it heavy. And then we used to get a stick, and, and then we would play baseball. The thing I find so special is how close my dad still is to some of his best friends from kindergarten. Some of these are lifelong friendships that people make and continue through baseball. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how the movie Sandlot, The Sandlot, makes you think of your childhood? I said you shouldn't even be allowed to touch a baseball. Except for Rodriguez, you're all an insult to the game. I swear, the script was the same as what I grew up in. That was, that, that was us, you know. You plan a real diamond porter? In this field where it was mostly rocks and, and dirt, no grass. And it was, and we used to play against other kids, uh, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, and we have like a, our rival. You mixed your weeds with your mama's toe jam! Yeah! You bought for apples in the toilet, and you like it! Well, another rival, but this one was because they, they would come riding to play us in their nice bicycles. We, we didn't have bicycles. <laughs> so that movie, you know, every time I watch it, like, that just brings back so many memories because that was, that was us right there. Did the rival team have nice 
pressed uniforms. Yeah, they had their uniforms and, and their nice bicycles and nice equipment. And we we used to use our you know gloves that were probably from the 40s. <laughs> And, uh, and of course, back then we didn't use aluminum bats. Uh, they, I don't think they had been invented yet. Uh, but uh, you know, we used to have to take care of our bats because uh, we don't have to. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, that movie brought, brings back a lot of memories, and they're good memories, you know. And, uh, makes me appreciate uh, more growing up in a town like Nogales. My, my childhood was really, really good. I, I really liked it. Who signed you up for Little League originally? I would have to say my dad. Uh, yeah, both my mom and my dad would go watch me play and they would get a big kick out of me playing. You know? It was fun knowing that they were out there and watching me. You know. The year was 1964 and my dad was nine years old. Some might say that the game is boring. What do you have to say about that? Well, you know, I've always said that uh, the three major sports, actually four major sport, sports if you count soccer, because I think it is probably the number one sport in the world. Of those four sports, I think playing baseball is probably the toughest. And maybe it's not physical, but mentally, you gotta, you, know, you gotta do things right in order to score one run, you know? So it's a challenge uh, that fans get bored. Well, that's on them, you know? <laughs> but it's a beautiful game. It's a, it's a really beautiful game. It's, a, it's America's pastime, you know? They love to sit and you know drink a beer or eat a hot dog, uh, popcorn, whatever, and watch, watch the game, you know? Take the family and talk to their kids while they're watching the game. And then all of a sudden, someone hits a home run and everybody gets all excited. And I don't know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Why is it that baseball is so popular amongst Latinos or Mexicanos? Well, you know, it's it's. I think that baseball in general is not as popular in southern uh, Mexico, like Mexico City and all those other states. They do play it, but soccer is number one over there. But in northern northern Mexico, baseball is well. They used to call it el rey de los deportes, which is the king of sports, el baseball. You know, and uh, you know that's that's what we would hear on the radio. Uh, everybody, you know, all the kids, you know, would pay attention to that. And, yeah, they wanted to play baseball. And we've had throughout the years a lot of uh, really good uh, baseball players come out of Nogales. I know Gil Heredia from Nogales. Uh, and, uh, he, I know he made it uh, into the majors. But even that, you know, a, a lot of them also played in double-A AA or triple-A ball. And, and, or, or they would go abroad, you know, they would go play in in, in the leagues in Mexico, too. So, um, yeah, Nogales has always produced uh, great baseball players. There's just a big passion uh, about baseball. And just putting on that uniform in Nogales was a big deal. That, that I, I remember so much. I asked Dr. Salazar Porzio how baseball has existed as a crucial social and cultural force within Latino communities across the United States. Well, I think what we found when we were doing this work is that the story of Latinos and baseball is fundamentally, it exists across every state and territory of the United States. It's something that is so widespread 
and so important to communities. In particular, in the 20th century, you know, like mid 20th century, before soccer really started taking hold, baseball was the way that Latinos made homes for themselves. They navigated new spaces by finding common ground on the baseball field. Baseball really was an important conduit to communities. She said that it wasn't until Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947 that Latinos were allowed to play in the major leagues. Most of the stories of baseball happen in communities, and baseball really, you know, took hold in communities during the early 20th century because Latinos weren't able to play in the major leagues, but they were highly talented and they formed their own leagues and teams in their communities. She said that Latinos who go into the major league or even big jobs in the industry, such as sports broadcasting, have been known to return to their communities and give back, including one of the biggest Latino stars in baseball, Roberto Clemente. You know, he would still go back to Carolina, where he's from in Puerto Rico, and do clinics with the kids. And he was a huge philanthropist. There's that tradition that's there, including like Big Papi, David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, you know, they go back to their communities and give back as well. And so there's that tradition of going back. So I think that like, not only are they hometown heroes, because they kind of made it out into like the big leagues, and they made it big, but they continue to have that, you know, connection to community. And that's really important in, you know, in their lives. I think that's also what drives that connection to community. You know, we can highlight, you know, we can highlight the achievements and accomplishments of the Latino players who made it to the major leagues. But what else do you think is worth noting in these stories on a local level? Well, I mean, I think obviously we should celebrate the, you know, people who made it big, but they're the exception. They're not the rule, right? What she found that made the game so exciting was that Latinos could be their own heroes within their own communities. We often say, and it's kind of shorthand, but Latinos have changed the sights, sounds, and tastes of the game. The sights are different, the sounds are different. We can talk about the food. And those, you know, that that's like a big, that's a big shift in the last couple of decades. From all-star players like Fernando Valenzuela to walk-up songs of reggaeton and mariachi, Latinos have created an outsized impact in Major League Baseball. I talk with Alex Nunez, doctoral student in the Department of History at the University of Arizona, whose research focuses on the relationship between Mexican-American identity and sport in the United States, who also collaborated with the site's Playball exhibition. Nunez says that he credits his grandfather for the motivation to study the sport. He sort of credits sport as, quote-unquote, his way out, not just sort of a in a legal sense, but also socioeconomically, family-wise, um, that opportunity really anchored the ability to, to grow his family and do something that he liked. He said his grandfather was a professional basketball referee. He uses sport as well to, to give back. He did a lot of things related to 
youth participation, training younger professionals that wanted to do the same thing. And he had a keen eye for the Mexican-American community in Phoenix through sport as well. His sort of motto that he would always say was academics through athletics. So sports as sort of a vehicle to accomplish other goals. Nunez said that in his research, he found that sport has the potential to be a vehicle for change, particularly for individuals who will never have the opportunity to play professional athletics or other areas of sport. Instead, using that vehicle as a form of cultural expression or community building. Uh, One of the detractors, I would say, from studying what I study is a lot of times there's a belief that sports history or sports studies is really marginal. It's sort of tangential to uh, other sort of louder uh, narratives in U.S. history, the wars and the politics and the presidents and all of those sort of really top-down topics. And so I was really happy to see as well that that the Playball exhibition was more interested in the sort of community level uh, experience with baseball. Um, and, and, and to me, that meant that they were interested in the bottom-up view of history, not necessarily the experiences of professional players that a lot of us know about, but more so the day-to-day interactions with baseball that your neighbors go through or that the visitors go through. I would see a lot of comments and stories about visitors who come in and they see something like a very rudimentary baseball bat that someone made out of a broomstick or something. And then that would be an impetus for them to share a story about, oh yeah, when I played sandlot baseball in my barrio, we had to make the bases out of burlap sacks. And uh, we had to go make sure to pick up all the cow patties in the field so we didn't step in anything when we were playing. Why do seemingly trivial anecdotes matter to individuals? What they really are, they're conversation starters, and it makes visitors and readers or whatever the medium is understand that their own personal experience is really important. And it's something that other people probably share with them, even though it's not going to be something they see in a movie or in a, you know, one of those nightstand books that you see at the bookstore. Uh, but still, it's there. It, it, it provides significance to that individual's own experience, especially when probably for a lot of their lives, uh, a Mexican-American visitor or a, a Latino visitor or, or someone who's had sort of this subaltern minority experience in the United States has probably lived a lot of their lives sort of feeling devalued or discriminated and then seeing someone who looks like them, has a shared experience with them, really celebrated uh, in, a, in a venue, in a platform like at the Smithsonian. So um, I think that's the biggest impact that an exhibition like this has and um, something that I'm very grateful to have been a part of um, in developing uh, with them. What are some different things that people might not notice if they're just focused on, you know, the main or the biggest historical events. I think the biggest thing related to why we should look at a lot of historical moments from a bottom-up approach is the idea of agency. And what I mean by that is is the ability for an individual person to be able to control things. 
I think a lot of times with top-down histories, um, we sort of frame those historical figures, presidents and generals and, and business moguls and all of that, as sort of um, almost like an exclusive light in, in being able to enact big changes. And when we sort of consume a lot of information like that, I think a lot of times it can make one individual person who doesn't have that stature feel a little bit powerless. When we look at things from a bottom-up approach, what it does is, well, in my experience at least, I think it's been really inspiring to see somebody who comes from maybe not a lot of means or um, maybe you know isn't doesn't have all the all the college degrees or or isn't the best baseball player or something like that but still understanding their experience in a way as important enough where it has instigated some kind of a change. I asked my dad why he thinks it's so special to talk about student athletes who come from Nogales, who are getting college scholarship offers or even recruited to play professionally. Why do you think that leaves such an impression on the community, on their home community? It's because it, it's a reflection on the community. Uh, the players are a product of the whole community. It represents them. And I think knowing the Nogales people, they're very proud of that. And, and of course, everybody wants attention, you know, the attention that the baseball team brings to, to the city once, even if they just win, you know, state championships, you know, but that's a big deal. Uh, just like it would be for football. You go to Texas, uh, Texas, they love football, and and it's all these little towns that have their football team, and they take a lot of pride. It's a big deal to them. And I think uh, for baseball, Nogales feels that way, too. I think Douglas does, too, and Tucson, Tucson High. Why do you think baseball is such a special sport to you? Just that my dad, you know, he used to love baseball, and... Uh, like I said, you know, he would take me to the games across the line, and and uh, I just fell in love with the game. And I saw how much strategy and that's involved in the game, which really caught my attention. You know, I just I just liked that, and and, and the people in the, in Nogales, you know, they were very passionate about baseball, and everybody that's what they talked about. They didn't talk about football. They didn't talk about basketball. They talked about baseball. So as a little kid, you know, it leaves an impression on you. So you want to do something that people like, you know. So and I just fell with in love with the sport since I was a very little kid, and and uh, to this day, uh, that's the best uh, sport that I could have ever played. Yeah, it was a great sport. For more than a game, I'm Katia Mendoza. A Tucson Middle School is collaborating with the group Southern Arizona Adaptive Sports to change how we understand ability in athletics. The first-of-its-kind program will equip local schools to include adaptive sports in their physical education plans so students can become familiar with them. In this audio postcard, produced by AZPM's Paula Rodriguez, you'll hear how Tucson City Council member and PE teacher at Gridley Middle School, Paul Cunningham, hopes to teach students about adaptive sports. In this particular case, wheelchair basketball. Coach Beard is ready for our jump ball. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen in attendance, are you ready? Let's get ready to rumble.
Today was the final day of our uh, inclusion recreation program where able-bodied kids were exposed to wheelchair basketball. They got to play wheelchair basketball with uh, wheelchair athletes over the course of the week. They got to gain some perspective. They got to learn some life lessons. They were challenged with some tough questions like, hey, it's great that you played wheelchair basketball, but what if you couldn't get out of the chair? And for a middle schooler, that's a really introspective question. And I think it gives them a great impact and perspective on, on their growth. Teachers know that look, that look that a kid gets when they're really thinking about something and you've actually challenged their mind and got them to really acquire knowledge. And that's when you see that look 50 times in one hour, that's the best feeling you can get in a teacher. And that's what we got this week. We got a lot of that. As a teacher, I couldn't even be prouder of our kids because in a lot of ways, this brought out the best in our students. And that's why I really enjoyed teaching this evening. Well, I think when you teach PE, it's not like when we were kids, hey, climb a rope and get an A. Uh, PE has changed. We want to get kids moving. We want to get them fitness-minded, but we also want them to be good people. There's a big citizenship and teamwork piece to physical education, and I think this, the learning objectives outlined in this lesson plan meet all those challenges. So my name is Mia Hansen, and I'm the executive director and one of the founders of Southern Arizona Adaptive Sports. We're also known as SAS. Today is the launch of a special new program where we are bringing adaptive sports and inclusive recreation into schools. Sports are for everybody, and wheelchair basketball, for example, or seated volleyball is just another sport, just another piece of equipment that you can use to play and to have fun. You know, activity and, and physical fitness is so important for all kids, but especially kids with physical disabilities. Some studies are showing that as many as 50 to 60 percent of kids with physical disabilities are just opting out of PE in school because they, the teachers aren't able to accommodate them or they don't have the equipment. This new program is going to bring equipment. We're going to bring these wheelchairs to any school that wants them. We're going to teach the teachers how to teach the curriculum, and then we're going to let them go have fun. This young man who's about to fist bump me here, Esteban. How old are you, Esteban? I'm nine and I'm turning ten in le less than one month. Hey, Esteban, what was it like for you today to be here showing off your wheelchair skills to all these kids? Honestly, I feel happy because uh, some of them don't even know what it feels like. Right, and you do, right? Yeah. You were kind of able to school them up a little bit? Yeah. And you were sort of a superstar today? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And you got a very special gift. What did you get today? What are you sitting in? I'm sitting in a special gift from the Hartford people. The Hartford people, and they gave you a new sports wheelchair. Not a minute left. Part of the problem here is that there's a lot of barriers for kids like Estevan to get this kind of equipment. It's expensive. This chair he's sitting in is four to $5,000. So we were able to get this support from the Hartford, from Move United, which is our umbrella organization that we belong to, and, you know, someone like Estevan is now a superstar. 
in front of thousands of kids, right? So this is really helping someone like Estevan to be more confident, to have that ability like all kids want, to just be a part of something, a part of something big and exciting. And I think that to me is what, for kids with disabilities who unfortunately often are bullied or have stigma about their disability, they're in here just participating and actually excelling. One of our kids just shot a three-pointer and drained it. Step side, LeBron James. <laughs> Good stuff. 13, 12, 11, dead ball, dead ball, 11 seconds, 11 seconds. I think all the kids who, who are out there who are going to have a chance to experience this are really going to get firsthand, you know, what the importance and the impact is of all inclusivity. Right, everybody's in. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you sound like, what clothes you're wearing, if you have a different body part missing or you're disabled, it doesn't matter. You're all important and everyone deserves a chance to play and to excel. All right, Gridley, how about a round of applause for the Junior Wildcats and our Olympic edition. That audio postcard was produced by Paulo Rodriguez. And that's it for this episode of More Than a Game. Join us next time as our series on Latinos and baseball continues with the story of a Nogales coaching legend. The show is produced and mixed by Zach Ziegler. Our news director is Christopher Conover. Our logo was designed by A.C. Swedberg. Thanks to our marketing team for their help in launching this podcast. This show is part of the AZPM podcast family. You can find all of our podcasts, news, and video productions at azpm.org. I'm Tony Perkins. See you next time.